Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting April 11th, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, the forensics of photos and bird brains. We'll talk with animal behavior expert Bernd Heinrich about raven intelligence, and a couple of researchers from Adobe Systems will discuss forensic photography, methods in development to root out image manipulation. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Bernd Heinrich. He's a professor of biology at the University of Vermont. He's written seven articles for Scientific American. The latest, co-authored by Thomas Bugniar, is in the April issue and is called Just How Smart Are Ravens? I called Heinrich at his office in Burlington, Vermont. Hi, Dr. Heinrich. How are you today? Fine. Thank you, Steve. Tell me, first of all, all ravens are crows, but not all crows are ravens. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, ravens are a select group of crows, uh, generally larger birds. And, uh, you know, the raven that we're talking about here is Corvus corax, which is the... uh, uh, the raven that most people think of, it's all over the Northern Hemisphere, Asia, uh, Europe, North America, down to South America, so it's huge distribution. But, uh, for example, in the, in the New York metropolitan area, if I see a large black bird on a telephone pole, is that a, a raven? No, that's a crow. That's a crow, okay, mm-hmm. so, and, and a raven will be noticeably larger than a crow. Noticeably, yes. Okay, good. So now, the article is called, Just How Smart Are Ravens? So, how smart are they? Well, uh, you know, it's hard to say compared to, to what. And what do we mean by smart when we're talking about another species? Exactly. So, you know, different animals have different intelligences. They can do different things. And, you know, they're, so it's, uh, I think uh, what we were concerned about mostly is whether or not they can reason and, uh, whether or not they uh, distinguish other individuals and make distinctions between other individuals on the basis of what they might know or how they might react to them. There are many different things. I mean, one could look at tool use or any number of things for intelligence, but I think mostly what we're talking about is uh, responses that are not, uh, that are rather complex, that are not uh, strictly programmed by evolution uh, uh, that are hardwired, for example, some insects can use tools even and do some very complex things like build nests, which are, you know, very complex, but we wouldn't call it intelligence because it's not really smart. It's they're, they're programmed that way. And on the other hand, we want to also distinguish between responses that are, that are learned by trial and error. Uh, you know, you can teach a, a snail uh or, uh, or or a bee to distinguish and, and learn in a, in a few trials, uh, but uh, then you can shape the behavior by having, you know, one response after another added on, like the psychologists train rats to do all kinds of fancy things by rewards and punishment one step at a time where they don't have to know a thing about why they're doing it. Why don't you talk a little bit about one of the experiments that you go into detail about in the article where the, the birds have to pull up this string to get the food. Yeah, well, I started that uh, string experiment kind of just by happenstance somewhere back in the early 90s. Uh, I, uh, I had a bunch of ravens for various other reasons, and uh, these are tame birds that, that I had in the aviary at the house. And, 
you know, I knew what their background was. They'd never seen string, um, never had food presented in any such way. And I knew that in the wild, ravens are scavengers who who feed on mostly on on dead animals, that carnivores, uh, wolves, and so on, and uh, provide. So they don't get food, you know, that's suspended on something long. So they can't be genetically programmed for that for getting food that's suspended on the string that's about a meter long. Right. This is a and, novel situation. A novel situation, presented. right. And and I'd never before, you know, presented food to them that way. So it's just a very cheap way. I just just curious. So I stuck a you know, a string out there and uh, uh put food on there and 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 I expected that uh, they would uh, you know, maybe fly at it and try to grab it and do the obvious uh, simplest thing, which wouldn't get him any food because you can't swallow it if it's dangling down. To my great surprise, after a while, he went over there and kind of looked at the situation and pecked on the string a little bit, and then he reached down and grabbed the string and pulled it up and then set it onto the perch and put his foot on it and then looked around and reached down pulled up another uh, loop and stepped on it, etc., and stepped on that loop, etc., until he got the meat, uh, which was uh, hard salami. And uh, so, uh, you know, I was totally blown away because that seemed to suggest that the bird had an understanding of what it was doing. And uh, and so I had to get birds and test them one at a time, and I had to get them used to string by having it available, but not dangling. I mean, just had it just on the wall mm-hmm. and tied so that they could, because I didn't want them to be afraid of the situation, not to be afraid of string. Ravens are extremely touchy. They're afraid of anything that's new. But interestingly, they're not apparently afraid of uh, sneaking up behind a wolf and pecking at its backside. Exactly. That's a, that is a fascinating thing about them. You know, this is a, a play behavior that it has evolved for them to get acquainted with carnivores that normally provide them with food. Can we uh, let's go back to the uh, to the string experiment just for one more moment and uh, and follow up on on how it really indicates a uh, kind of an intelligence rather than a, an instinct the this behavior because it it actually appears that there was some serious preparation involved. They they actually seem to be studying the situation and only taking action after having formulated some kind of a plan. Yeah, well, I don't know if they had actually formulated a plan. All I know is that they hesitate a lot, uh, which might be due to that they formulate a plan. On the other hand, it might be just that they're afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the point was that uh, but once they got there and went on the string, were not afraid of it, then, then uh, some of them could do it very quickly and others not. Uh, first of all, the, the ones that couldn't do it were the young birds, they would solve the problem in about six minutes after they started, but they would test all kinds of things. They would pull on the string, drop it, peck it, twist it, jump at it, and all kinds of stuff like that, all different things, and, and then they would do it. The adult birds would bypass a lot of those, what to us seems obvious, uh, solutions which don't work. So as though they had tried them in their mind, the same way as we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're, this is this is a general kind of question about the theoretical difficulties in working in this field, when you are dealing with another species, how do you continually try to make sure that you're 
you're leaving your assumptions about what intelligence is at the door and and really objectively studying intelligence. Well, I know objectively that they did not have the experience before. Mm -hmm. I know objectively that they could not be programmed to do the whole sequence. I mean, they might be programmed, genetically have programming to peck uh, and pull, uh, but uh, to go through a whole sequence is of, of uh, applying that to the situation is not something that the whole sequence could be genetically programmed because that's not how they find uh, or, or get food in the wild. Right. But in general, when you're designing an experiment, you must have to keep that uh, at the forefront of your mind at all times. Exactly. About, yeah. Exactly. You've got to have the natural history of the animal in mind. And you have to know a lot about the animal's lifestyle. And you have to know the animal, first of all. Or else you you might wind up not testing the thing that you think you're actually testing. That's right. But the test, in this case, the test is so unique that uh, that even if one solves it, because there's so many steps involved, you have to do them all in a in a specific sequence. And if you know uh, how to do it, then you can pull together a sequence of a couple of dozen steps. And if you don't know it, then each of them has to be programmed specifically in a reward program where, you know, reward one and then you add on another, another, and another. And that should take weeks, maybe. And that should take weeks and weeks, yeah. So the article, again, is called Just How Smart Are Ravens? It's in our April issue of Scientific American. And there's a lot in there about the interactions between ravens and, and wolves and, and, the, and specifically the interactions between among ravens with each other and, and how interesting those are because this is a, an amazingly social animal that uh, has complex relationships with its conspecifics there. Yeah, this is uh, it's one of the things that possibly makes them more intelligent than other birds is their real social behavior. They have to know each other. They are confronted with uh, with uh, dangerous carnivores at the at the food, and uh, they have to interact with each other and predict each other's behaviors. And uh, so all of this kind of came out, you know, through through the studies as I was going from one little step to the next. Uh, food finding behavior, how they determine what's good to eat, and and how they interact with all of these things which are relevant in the environment. You have a book coming out in the next few weeks, I understand. Yes, it's called The Snoring Bird. Uh, and uh, I, uh, it's, it's a lot about my father. Actually, he was one of those Victorian-type explorers who went all over the world collecting birds for different museums. And uh, one of the birds that was very much desired by Leonard Sanford at the American Museum of Natural History in 1930s was a rail that was thought to be extinct uh, from Indonesia. And uh, my father had contacts with Urban Stresemann, who was one of the premier ornithologists in the world at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he and Sanford were friends, and they met in Berlin. And my father was there. He had gone to... Uh, he had collected some birds in Bulgaria and written a little paper on it and shown it to Stresemann, and, and they decided that he might be a, a good collector to go after it. And so he uh, and uh, three women <laughs> went out to Indonesia, and he spent three years, no, two years, uh, looking for the bird, and near the end he found it. 
and that kind of earned his stripes as an ornithologist um, and collector, and uh, ultimately that uh, brought us to America. And so, you know, I kind of talk about the legacy of early Victorian naturalists and my father in particular and his adventurous life and uh, and how my relationship to him. And and the book, again, is called The Snoring Bird? The Snoring Bird, yeah. It's, it, it refers to a, a rail uh, from Indonesia, which... Uh, his vocalization sounded like a snore, it turned out, at the end. Uh-huh. And that's how I tracked it down. So this is sort of a, a microcosm of, of that whole era of Victorian exploration and collection. Mm-hmm. And in part, it's autobiographical, too, because I relate how my evolution as a biologist stemmed from my father's. Dr. Heinrich, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Steve. Just How Smart Are Ravens by Bernd Heinrich and Thomas Bugnier is in the April issue of Scientific American. It's also available at our website, www.siam.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, cranking up the Large Hadron Collider in Europe will be delayed because of a math error in the construction. Story two, genetic analysis shows that the famously feuding families, the Hatfields and McCoys, are actually very closely related. Story three, a new study finds that about half of the world's species of magnolias appear to be in jeopardy. And story four, good news about chocolate. Chocolate, cocoa, appears to have a beneficial effect on blood pressure. We'll be back with the answer, but first, I recently sat down with a couple of bigwigs from Adobe Systems, whose products you probably use a lot from Acrobat to Photoshop. David Story is Adobe's Vice President for Digital Imaging Engineering. Martin Newell carries the title of Adobe Fellow. For four decades, he's been a computer scientist and software engineer. They were visiting New York from their home base in San Jose, California, and we met to talk about the future of digital imaging. We talked for a good 90 minutes, so I'm saving some of the discussion for a future episode or two, but I'll tell you this, it's going to soon become almost impossible to take a bad picture. This week, though, I want to play you the part of our conversation that dealt with forensics. Image manipulation is becoming so sophisticated, how do you make sure that an image in the news or in court hasn't been tampered with? By the way, we were in a boardroom with a big window facing Broadway and with lots of air coming out of ducts. So that's the extra bonus sounds that you're going to hear. David Story has the American accent. Martin Newell has the British accent. Are you embedding any information so that, for legal reasons, you can tell if a photograph has been tampered with? Um, actually, yes. I mean, for one of the things that's very um, kind of, I wish it was better known feature of Photoshop, is that there's a, 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 f- a thing called the history log. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it's the first thing, when you open up your preferences, there's a checkbox, and it says, record everything I do to this image. And there's and it's a readable format, and we've actually worked with law enforcement agencies to make it useful to them. Um, but it's useful to anyone, whether they're you know science or nature you know journals, mm-hmm. whether they're receiving imagery about stem cell research, right, where the... the famous, you know, South Korean case where the guy actually cloned parts of the image 
to make it look like there were more stem cells. Right. Clone parts of the image, not the cells. Right, right. right. <laughs> he was very successful with Photoshop or whatever he right, used. He just, it was the clone stamp, unfortunately, and not, uh, and not the other. So there could be rules of evidence whereby the, the history log must be available on a photograph before it would be admissible in court. Yes. And actually what, what we recommend to people is we recommend that they capture the original image and have that as backup and submit the, the final image with the history log embedded, right. right? And then you can look at it and say, okay, that was the original. I can tell what they did grossly. Mm-hmm. But then I can look at the history log and see if they used any kind of you know off-limits tools. It, with power comes responsibility. And if we're going to give people these p- tools this powerful, we need to help people understand how to detect when something has been tampered. The people who are really good with Photoshop probably aren't getting caught. Um, and so, so this part of our research is actually something where it's based on our ethics. And we said, couldn't we find some research and, and support it and advance it that actually will help people to detect what's wrong with the image? And we actually found a, a professor at Dartmouth, um, Hani Farid, who'd been working on this. And he had just started to get some results. And we said, all right, we jumped in, we f- helped fund his lab, we put engineers on it, we put our tech transfer engineer in place, we did student exchanges. And, um, and so we've come up with some tools. So now, and, and what criminologists would like is they'd like what they have on CSI. Right. You want to make things that can do what the things on CSI already do. Right. That's your inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> so, cause none of those softwares exist. Right. Right. So, um, but we said, all right, let, what if we had some tools that were about image forensics? And we said, what if we could detect whether the color filter array, the, the, the sensor image, has been altered. Uh-huh. Now, with a digital camera, it turns out that in a in a camera, the camera itself doesn't sample red, green, and blue at every pixel. Right. Right. It, it has red. Each yeah, exactly. So, how does it get red, green, and blue at every pixel? Right. I mean, it copies somehow. Yeah. I mean, if you kind of average the color from this blue pixel to that blue pixel, you're going to have a very strong frequency signature. Right. You're going to see every other pixel. The information is related. Kind of right in between. And, and pretty much every digital camera does this. Wouldn't it be great if I could just spray something on the image or run a swab and stick it in a machine? And information reveals itself. And see the blood spatter or whatever. In this case, it's the, the spatter of having altered the image. Yeah, essentially there's two parts of the process. The first one does look at all the pixels and tries to determine if any pixel is likely to have been some kind of a weighted average of the pixels around it. A simple one would be equal to a nearest neighbor, or another one would be interpolated between average of two neighbors. Other ones, there are very, various different algorithms used to fill in those pixels in the digital camera. Some of them are a filter over a much larger area to fill in that color. But there's the, the first pass does come up with a map over the entire image, or over the region of the image we're inspecting in this case, um, of how likely it is that that is correlated with the pixels around it in this particular way. So you get a probability exactly at the end of your computation of yeah. doctoring. You don't get a definite, but you get there's a ninety five percent probability that this has been altered. That's well, actually, correct. We've shown that it's admissible in a court of law. Mm-hmm. Professor Fareed actually does a number of expert consultations. You know, a tool that that uh, that you actually have in Elements that you may or may not have used is the clone stamp. And uh, and so what we said is, you know, why don't we build some tools that can scan for cloning? And we'll look at this image and say, okay, let's look at it automatically, the whole image, and see, you know, is there anything really suspicious? 
mathematically, we looked at the math and said it is improbably similar to this region over here. Right. Right. So it's it's highlighting the two regions that are too close to each other to be yeah chance. And so and so this really what this is is not like we're going to ship this tomorrow. This is based on our ethics. We said we need to find research to give people the responsibility and the ability, frankly, to start to detect some of the tampering that's going on. There's a lot more tampering going on than we're detecting. You need tools beyond the naked eye. Mm -hmm. And so this is the beginning of a tool belt, a set of tools that will help us to detect different kinds of tampering. And it's not perfect. You know, it doesn't work in every circumstance yet. And Martin, you know, you said the other day that it's it's kind of like antivirus software, right? Right. We're going to come up with these tools, and then people will find a way to defeat them, and then we'll come up with better tools, and it's going to be an arms race with the tamperers. And and there's going to be kinds of tampering that we can definitely detect, right? Unless you've really gone out of your way to obscure it. And so the places that are most threatened by the integrity of photographs right now, like referee journals photojournalism and others, you know, and basically some of the, the basic crime scenes. If you say the detective took this picture, how do I know that the detective didn't, you know, modify it in Photoshop, right? We can give those people's tools to, to help them to prove what they have or haven't done. Um, and so in combination with features that are already in Photoshop, like the history log that we put in to help with that, um, we also want to be able to, to help just give basic tools. And so it's a start. And that's why we're you know, still in the labs, but we hope at some point to be able to bring this to people so they can actually detect this kind of tampering. More from the Adobe guys on the kinds of photos you'll be taking very soon on an upcoming podcast. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, delay in the Large Hadron Collider because of a math error. Story two, Hatfields and McCoys, close relatives. Story three, worldwide threat to magnolias. Story four, Coco appears to lower blood pressure. Time's up. Story one is true. The Large Hadron Collider particle accelerator suffered a setback because a magnet built by Fermilab in Illinois failed a high-pressure test. A resulting explosion moved the magnet, weighing some 20 tons, out of position. Fermilab's director said they had committed a pratfall on the world's stage. Story four is true. Coco can lower blood pressure, according to research in the Archives of Internal Medicine. Unfortunately, most cocoa products come with a lot of fat and sugar, but leaner cocoa dropped blood pressure as much as some medications in a two-week study. Interestingly, tea, green or black, did not have a similar effect. For more, check out the April 9th article on our website titled, Cocoa, Not Tea, Calms Blood Pressure, Study Says. And story three is true. Our magnolias are in trouble. That's according to a report from Bournemouth University School of Conservation Sciences on the southwest coast of the UK. The study says that 131 of 245 species face extinction, which is particularly troubling because the plants are considered indicators of the health of their forest habitats. Two-thirds of magnolia species are native to Asia. Chinese temples house individual magnolias, some of which may be 800 years old. All of which means that story two about the feuding Hatfields and McCoys actually being very close relatives is totally bogus. 
What is true is that the McCoys may have started it, because it turns out that some members of the McCoy family have an inherited condition that can cause a hair-trigger temper and violent outbursts. The Associated Press reports that some McCoys have von Hippel-Lindau disease, which affects the adrenal glands, which can cause a serious overproduction of adrenaline and catecholamines, leading to rage, could explain in part why the Enterprise's Dr. McCoy would always get so mad at Spock, according to the Wikipedia entry on the Hatfield-McCoy feud in a Star Trek episode, Bones McCoy claims ancestry with the famous clan. I'm trying to thank you, you pointed-eared hobgoblin! Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com, and the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. (laughs) 